Hello and welcome to the Michael Clark Show podcast, where every Wednesday I'll bring you an interview with a different special guest. Many will be from the world of sport. All of them have a story worth sharing. In a time when doom and gloom is all too easy to find, this is a place where we'll be promoting the positive. So I hope you'll keep me company each week as I explore where our guests get their motivation and inspiration from to succeed. Hello and welcome back. It is episode 12 of the podcast and our special guest this week, as you can see, is none other than Owen Coyle. Owen, thank you so much for coming on. I'm delighted. I mean, to get the chance, Michael, to talk about football is brilliant. I'm not sure about number 12. I mean, that all suggested in my era when we played that I was a substitute. So anyway, not to worry. Looking forward to it. Let's have a bit of fun and, and crack on. Definitely. Uh, worthy always of a starting 11 place, Owen. <laughs> I'm not sure a number of my managers would have said that, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is it? Just under 300 career goals? That's not too shabby. Yeah, well, actually, yeah. I mean, that, uh, I'm not saying it's a, a, it rankles a little bit. I think it was about, I think all in all, Cup and League, it's about 297. But what happened, actually, I was still playing. I was, uh, I was playing assistant manager at Airdrie, actually, for Sandy Stewart, who's now my assistant. Sandy was a manager at Erdogan. I'd come from Dundee United to help him as a coach. Then Kenny Black, Kenny went with Craig Levine to Leicester. And Sandy asked me would I help him as assistant while I was still playing, so, which I did. And I was the top goal scorer at Erdogan that season. I think there was four or five games left when I was offered the St. Johnston job. But of course, because the transfer window had closed, then I wasn't then allowed to play the, the remaining games of the season. So I was on 297. That being said, I've got no excuses because... I did play a few games for St. Johnston because I was player-manager, although it's such a difficult job. It's bad enough, or certainly tough enough being a manager, never mind being a player-manager. It's a really tough gig, that one. But I did have a few chances at St. Johnston, so I've got nobody to blame for not quite reaching 300 by myself. But, yeah, listen, it wasn't a, it's not a bad effort for a, for a wee skinny lad for the Gorbals. I thought you were about to start including friendlies or something. There, go well. It's, it's three hundred and four <laughs> well, if you include pre-season. <laughs> well, I, listen, if I was including friend, friendlies, and that, I'd be okay. But no, uh, yeah, the ones, the official games, yeah. So just short of three hundred. But listen, I was delighted. I mean, football's the best game in the world, and to have your career in football, I mean, you're truly blessed. And I met some wonderful people along the way. So yeah, very thankful for for everything. I thought you were going to go Paisley Pele on me there. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, even that, you know, people say you're, you're born in Paisley, which I was, but it was only because the hospitals in Glasgow were full at the time. Because obviously I'm from the Gorbals, one of, one of you know, five brothers, three sisters, uh, both my parents, as you know, are from Donegal. And uh, so uh, we, I, I think my mum gets shipped to Paisley because the hospitals were full. So when they see Paisley and they think you're from Paisley, nice place, but I'm actually from the Gorbals, so all good. Yeah, no, just right as well. You make sure you represent that. And I know um, certainly you're a big big Celtic fan growing up, um, football in your blood from day dot, was it? Yeah, as I say, obviously my, my, my dad, they obviously come over from Donegal, was a very talented uh, footballer, he played with the, the Forland Dynamos, as well. he's from bloody Forland, uh, northwest tip of Donegal, and uh, loved his football, decent player, obviously at that time, chances were, you know, not as, uh, well, I wouldn't say restricted, but coming from when they come, the priorities to work, and raise a family and do right by them. So, but they obviously must have some sort of ability in his genes. And my mother's side, her brothers were always very good players as well. Anyway, that transmitted through the boys. I mean, my two older brothers were professionals, Joseph and Thomas. My three other, John, uh, Paul and Gary, were all played junior level and could have played as well. So, yeah, we all had a little bit of something. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say from a very early age, 
always thought about was football. And, and you're, you're right, grew up in Glasgow area, support Glasgow Celtic and Glasgow Rangers. And obviously, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm a Celtic man. That goes without saying. So when you're growing up, I imagine your brothers are bringing you in as a bit of a ringer for games as well, knowing that there's a talent in the family. Well, this probably goes back to the era. People my age will know what I'm talking about. In those days, Michael, for example, on a Sunday, in the local pitch or the school pitch or whatever, you would have people, I swear, from 60 years of age to seven and eight years of age, everybody playing in the same field. And the game would start probably at 12 o'clock, but it would finish at six or seven at night. And people would leave for an hour to go and get their tea and come back. And it was just, it, it was probably the uh, summing up kind of community spirit. And it didn't matter whether you were it was seven or eight or you were 55 or 60 or whatever it was, everybody played a part in that. It was, it was a real eye-opener, a real learning, because you had to urine with these men and they didn't, no, they didn't yeah, give you any safe passage because you were a, 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 little, a little one, a skinny one, it didn't matter. So but it was brilliant, it was fantastic, and I think that's what we learned all of what I would say, like, uh, gained the football skills, football intelligence, because it was, it was certainly a tough environment, but so, uh, so much fun and so enjoyable. Oh, definitely, and a nice competitive environment as well. You know, when you see streets now, there's no ball games and and everything. It, it's sort of sad, isn't it, when you think to the way it was, and it was just like a, a mob of people going down and kicking lumps out of each other, but loving it and having fun. No, absolutely, absolutely. And it's, the thing is, and it was so competitive, and they had all different degrees of talents, but the one common denominator was everybody truly, truly loved football. Now, I'm not saying they don't love it these days, but because, and I listen to my parent myself, so I'm very protective of my kids and everything else, I get that. But I think there's no doubt it's, I wouldn't say a kind of softer generation, but their parents certainly more looked after, not that the parents didn't look after that time, but I don't think there was as many uh, things to worry about in those days because of the community spirit, because everybody was looking after each other. And, uh, but yeah, it was, listen, it was a fantastic upbringing, absolutely loved it. Back when health and safety was like a foreign concept. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you were that was, that was for sure. <laughs> there were no forms those days, just go on out and <laughs> come back when the streetlights are on or your tea's ready. Well, that was it. Yeah, and you used to run here. Man, they can throw me down a couple of a piece of jam or something. You have that your way back to 25. Listen, it was brilliant. What well, I mean, I know we all see the good old days, and there's been a lot of good, bad, different things. But for those those instances, it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, to think you probably it could easily be 60 people on that field, you know, 30 a side, whatever you want to call it. And then I mean, sometimes it was down to the numbers would go to get a take and back on. It was just amazing. It really was. Look, we'll, we'll come on to your career in a minute, but just with everything that's gone on in the world, how's the last year been for you? I, well, I, I think the same way everybody met. I, the first thing is that, you know, God willing, everybody's safe and well because it, people have been through a lot of different things with family and such things. And there's no doubt it's been challenging for everybody. Uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate, you know, the part of the world we have, even when there was lockdown, I do have a little bit of garden areas here so you can still get some fresh air. A lot of people didn't have that luxury and, you know, to be cooped in. And, and I think the big challenge within everything was the mental health and making sure everybody was right. So that was the important thing, that people would still speak to each other and pick the phone up and make sure people were all right is it because you couldn't travel to see them. So I think that contact was important. So, of course, yeah, it's been challenging. And then obviously within that, uh, I'm obviously coaching now out in India, as you know. So we went and we, we played the league season, but that was played in a bio-bubble. Uh, so all the teams were, were based in Goa which is a beautiful part of the world. But obviously the restrictions in the bio bubble was you could really only go from, from your room to the meal room slash restaurant, which also doubled as the analysis room, the team meeting room, the, the games room, 
everything was in there. So, and then when you come back, back to your room, go to training, back, go to the game. So, it was great the league get played and it was played at a decent level and everything else. But of course, the challenge was the, even the mental health for the players because normally you train with players that go away home to see their friends and family, they're back in the following day. But if you can imagine the football field, if there's a little bit of clash between players, which happens, that can kind of fester. So there was loads of stuff to deal with that. But that, listen, that's insignificant compared to what was going on in, 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 the, in the real world, shall I say, in respect of with COVID and everything. So hopefully, with the vaccine and everything, hopefully things will start to get better. But there's no doubt it's been a challenge for everybody. It must have felt like you were doing like a football edition of Big Brother, the way that has been described. You know, you're right on top of each other. Yeah, Michael, it's a great point because and people say, well, you're really lucky that you got away and we were. So I'm not dismissing that for, for, any, for any notion. The, but when you're in there, it's all relative to where you are and what you're doing at that particular time. So, for example, we, we stayed in a beautiful, beautiful hotel in the Taj Fort Aguada Hotel, right on, the 50, right on the beach where the hotel is, beautiful Taj Hotel. But obviously, we weren't allowed to mix with any hotel guests. We weren't allowed to... And, where the meal room is, that there was maybe about 30 yards to the perimeter of the hotel, and that was the beach was below it, beautiful beach. And there were some days, the boys were allowed to walk that path on the way back to the room. But there were some days I would look out and see four or five of them just, you know, looking at the fence, looking over to the beach, you know, thinking, oh, okay, you know, I'd love to get down there. So there was little things like that. But the most important thing was that the league played, every game was televised live. So it gave everybody in the country, and indeed I think it was televised to 84 countries. So it gave everybody else a lift, you know, if they were in their house under a lockdown, there was some sport or some football and hopefully that helped people because I think that was the aim of it. Isn't it just incredible how, you know, it's the other side of the world and in many ways it feels like a different world to us because we don't necessarily in the UK or Ireland keep track of what's going on in, you know, the Indian League and yet so many countries do and you can lose sight of that here sometimes, you know, you're, it's a whole new audience. I, th- I think you're right. I think we, uh, and you do, if you're in a, in a particular league, then you're engrossed in that league you really are, and you want to know. And then, you know, what's the one's next to you? So you take an interest in that as well. And then, of course, but the world is a, is a huge place, as we know. And in terms of football, football is growing everywhere. I mean, I'd obviously the spell in, in America and the MLS and seen the development there. I've travelled to different countries, seen different things, coached uh, in terms of helping people with little things for a week here and there. And, and you see it. And, and the thing is, the game's universal. It's global. Everybody loves football. You know, and the other thing with football is really so important in comparison to some other sports you don't have to spend a fortune to play. Yeah. All you need to do is get a ball, get your friends, and, and away you go. And even when back to earlier we were chatting about, sometimes even when you're playing in places that you didn't have goals, you know, the, the jerseys, the jackets were down, and you always found a way to do it. So that's why, you know, for that, it's such an inexpensive sport, and it's a sport that everybody over the, over the whole world loves. But in terms of the leagues, yes, I mean, so India, for example, India's a population of 1.3 billion. So, you know, so you can imagine how, you know, how many people in that population love sport. As I said, in, in terms of Asia and, and the AFC and everything else, you know, it goes live, the games go live to 84 countries. And every game, every game is shown live because each game's played on alternative nights. So it's one game a night. So in our leagues, as you know, everybody plays on a Saturday. Yeah. But because of the structure of the league, it was just, you play a Monday, one game, and a game Tuesday, all the way through. So I think... From a, a marketing point of view, it's quite a clever, quite a clever tool because you're having a live game all over those 84 countries, you know, for, for the duration of the season. And once you move to a country so densely populated, you'll never complain about our traffic again. <laughs> well, well, listen, I, I don't know if you've ever 
you know, if, if anybody's ever experienced traffic in India, uh, then they'll tell you it's it's crazy. It's absolutely. I mean, I, the the year before I was in in, in Chennai with Chennai, and you know, for a three lane, uh, if we run over here on three lanes, now I'll guarantee you there was six cars across those three lanes, and we because I, 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 I laughed when I went there because I thought my, myself back home we get a little bit of road rage if somebody's six foot from you. I mean, these cars are that close. To, that's how close they are to each other. And nothing's, nothing's, a, yeah, no problem. Nothing's a problem. And uh, but I think because of the population, the amount of cars and the little tuk-tuks and all that, and the motorbikes weaving in and out, it's certainly, uh, certainly crazy. But uh, it seems, for all the madness, I can't really recall it was too many accidents. It seemed to be like an organised chaos, if that's the best way I could put it, in terms of the driving. I don't know how, because sometimes when I, you know, when I look at it, it's almost like just pouring marbles out onto the floor. But it's, <laughs> but you're saying the marbles don't touch, so magic. <laughs> they, they, they don't, honestly, it was uh, you know well, it's just the, the, the way they've been brought up, been used to it, and everything yeah. else. And the other thing they do over there, which is in terms of noise, they, they do love to bite their horns. Now it's not uh, from road rage; it's just a, like an awareness thing. But I can guarantee you, it's it's it's, it's bedlam. You know, as soon as you're out the road, boom, boom, horns here, there, and everywhere. So, listen, they've got a way of working that works well for them. So, all good and well. You're a more cultured, more travelled man than I am, and I'm going to try and rectify that over the coming years. Definitely after the last year, spending a lot of time in the house, I think everybody's got itchy feet. But you do find that, don't you, when you when you when you travel around the world, all the the differences culturally. Like when I was in Rome for the first time, I realised like traffic lights were kind of like an advisory thing. <laughs> don't step out until the cars have stopped, regardless of what the wee grand, green man says. I, I would I would say to anybody it's going to be difficult because of even now to the other restrictions and everything else with the, the finance involved for a number of people. But if anybody got a chance to travel, we're racing from Ireland to Scotland, whatever, and, and go and meet different people and different. I mean, it, it's amazing when you meet different people, different cultures. And I can always judge countries on, on the people how the people are. You know, I've been very fortunate because growing up, obviously born in, 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 in coming from the Gormans in Glasgow, but my parents from Donegal. We were all there every year, and having that. The Irish nature, I like to think that we're so welcome and so friendly. And, you know, we've always got time for people, which I think is, you know, probably the best gift you can ever have, you know, to have time for people. And, and so I've been very fortunate in that respect. And that's why I like interacting with people and, and come across because, you know, it's always nice when you meet good people. Definitely. Um, I want to go back to your playing days in a minute, but just how are things coaching in India? I'm aware you're, you're home for the time being, but... Um, how has your, your journey been out there and um, and what's it like for anybody that isn't aware of you know the standard of players? We might have seen the odd story about big names yeah. going over to that league in the last few years and things like that, but sort of paint the picture, if you will. Well, well, now the ISL is now, it's seven seasons. It's, this is the seventh season. And uh, so it was it was a reliance with a huge company. Uh, they brought the model in and it was it's like a franchise league. You have to obviously have to pay, a bit like MLS, you have to pay a franchise fee to, to enter the league. So within that, there's some, some, some huge teams, big clubs, and each uh, year, there's no doubt it's getting better. The, the quality is getting better, the coaches coming in are improving, the young Indian players are getting better, and that's the key to it, because you can bring all the foreigners you want all in, but really the, the domestic, the home players, they have to improve for the league to improve. And so you're allowed, last season, you were allowed to sign seven foreigners, but only five can take the field. So then you've obviously six Indians playing along with that development. Now this year it's going to change because in line with the AFC criteria, which allows a Champion League spot and an AFC Cup equivalent Europa League, 
Mm-hmm. So it's going to change the, the format. It'll be three, it'll be four foreigners on the field. You can sign six and four, four, four foreigners on the field. But of those six, one of the players has to be an AFC player. So it's like if it was in the UK saying, okay, you can have six foreigners, but one must come from, you know, the, uh, not the UK, but such like that, that uh, Europe Champions League type of thing. So yeah. anyway, that would be the criteria for next year moving forward. So that then allows an extra place for the domestic and Indian player for next year to improve again, because ultimately that's got to be the goal. You've got to try and help the domestic game, albeit that foreigners are coming in and helping, which they're doing. And, uh, you know, some of those loads are, uh, like British connections within the league. Uh, Robbie Fowler is the head coach at East Bengal with Tony Grant and his uh, all the staff are all British lads. They've been so wonderful. My my captain is Peter Hartley, ex-Sunderland, who'd been the Motherwell captain. Uh, so there's a number of players littered through the league with those connections. And there's been, you know, good coaches, Steve Corpo, for example, Phil Brown have been out. So there's been, been, been boys that have worked within uh, English, Scottish, Irish football that, that have travelled over and, and, and helping, hopefully, to play a small part to improve the league. With it being such a, a massive population, you could say the potential must be huge as well. If you get the, the coaching right, the law of averages, if you have enough good coaches with that many people, you're bound to churn out some quality players. I, I think on most things, Michael, I think the key for me, the key is that at the grassroots and, and ultimately in football, most things come down to finance, most things come down to money. So I think they have to find a way with infrastructure that they invest that money in the grassroots because you're right. I mean, if you th- we talk about the population, 1.3 billion. Now, within that population, you know, they love their cricket, they love their football, they love their sport. So there's no doubt there's got to be talent there. What the talent needs to be is nurtured. But you've got to get it at an early age, you know, because, and I found this a lot about America when, when they used to do the draft with the college players. And you get the college players, but these boys were like 22, 23, 24. Good players. But for me, those formative years between 16 and 18, that's when you've got to get those kids. That's because, you know, rather than just being talented and then it just plateaus out, you want to have that steady, you know, the, the steady rise. It's, you know, it's improving year after year. And I think that's why, you know, if you can get them in the right early years, that's when you can help to improve players. And do you think you'll stay out there for the next few years? Is that the plan? Well, I've obviously got another. I signed with Jim Chetro last year for two years. We did very well there. We just missed out the playoffs. Jim Chetro, I've never been to the playoffs. So uh, we, there was vast improvement within the team and what we did, given that we're probably one of the, the lower budgets in the league. But we certainly get the best out of the group of players we had. And that's what we want to do again moving forward. We want to make sure that we look to get those top four playoff spots. I was in the playoffs the year before. I went over to Shania when they were bottom of the league. And I took them from the bottom of the league to the playoff final. And if truth be told, on another day, we probably finished champions. We were outstanding in the game. But as football can happen, sometimes things don't go your way in any particular game. But it was a brilliant experience. Uh, and then obviously now Jim Shedbro, we're improving them, we're helping them. And that's what we look to do. But the nature of football, Michael, you know what? It changes like that. If football changes very quickly. But what I would say is the brilliant people at Jim Shedbro, it's owned by the Tata Group. Uh, good club. They want to continue to get better. We want to help them to do that. And they, But within the league, for example, uh, East Bengal, who Robbie Fowler is a coach of, and ATK, so East Bengal come into the league and ATK have now tied up with a team called Moen Bagan. So Moen Bagan and East Bengal, they are the two, two legacy clubs, as they call them, of India. Now those are, in, in terms of Indian terms, those are the equivalent of Glasgow Celtic and Glasgow Rangers. When those two play in Kolkata, there is easily 100,000 at the game. This is, it's, you know, they, they actually have to try and stop them getting in. 
they're two huge, huge clubs. So last year, everything was behind closed doors. So we never got to see that. Obviously, if this year goes back to home and away, God willing it does, then for that derby alone, it's incredible to see. No pressure, Robbie Fowler. <laughs> no, well, well I, I mean, I got well with Robbie. I spent a bit of time with him when we, uh, we obviously played against him in the games, but uh, we, we would have some closed door games like, you know, for the boys that we weren't playing last year. So I got to spend them a good bit of time with him as well. And he's loving the challenge. But that, that is anything else. When you're in big clubs, like most clubs, there's pressure at any job. Obviously, the bigger club then, as we know, and I always think about Celtic and Rangers. You know, it's a perfect example because you could have a very good team. You could finish second narrowly on a number of reasons. Just maybe missed the cup, maybe just missed the league. But you know, for those two clubs, second's not good enough, and that's what we find this year again. You know, so that's similar a similar situation I would think with with those big clubs there. All good managers are good communicators. They need to find a way to get a message across and resonate with the players and get the players to really want to produce for them. When you add a, a language barrier into it, how has that been and, and, and how much of a learning curve has that been for you? I, I, th- I, think, I think it's a brilliant, first and foremost, a brilliant question. I found that from my experience in, in the MLS as well, because we were in Houston, which obviously in, in Texas, in the border of uh, Mexico, we had a lot of uh, Hispanic players uh, and their natural language is Spanish, so there weren't some key phrases as you do and everything else. Fortunately, in India, we're very fortunate that they do, you know, they, they, all, they all speak English, obviously at different levels. So that being said, myself and Sandy, particularly my assistant, I mean, his Scottish accent is broader than mine. And I learned many years ago, I was very fortunate when, when I signed for Bolton as a player in 1993. And I remember doing my first couple of interviews. And Glaswegians, as you know, when we talk, it's, it's like machine gun fire really, really fast. So I learned then that I just had to slow down a little bit. And when you do that, I think then... Of course, it's a lot easier to understand. That being said, as managers, we've all been known at different times to rank and rave. So I think then that becomes a bit more difficult. So that makes it easier just to calm yourself down, settle down and, and get your message across, which is your message there, is really important. So no, it's been enjoyable. And the great thing as well, particularly the young Indian lads, I mean, they're so receptive. They want to listen, they want to learn. The other thing as well, Michael, they, get, they, they don't come with any egos, you know, so they just want to get better. They want to improve it for themselves, for their family. And when you have that, you know, thing that, and you're, that gets you up in the morning that you want to be the best you can be, that's a tremendous thing to have. No egos. My God, I'm going to pinch myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say about the foreigners. I just said the local domestic ending to us. <laughs> Um, when, when you think back to your playing days, I don't think there's anybody that would say the playing days are, are the best days of your life. You know, everyone thinks that way, don't they? I'm sure you're the same. Listen, 100%. I've said that. Listen, when, when you get that little bit older and the legs are not as quick as it would be, of course, you know, stepping into coaching, management, it's a, it's a natural progression. It's the next best thing. But the best thing, you can, I say it to my players all the time, the playing days are the best days of your life. Go and enjoy every day because... You know, tomorrow, today could be your last game. You don't know what happens in football. So that's why every day at training, you should apply yourself to make sure you're giving your best. Enjoy what you do. There'll be mistakes. We know that. But listen, the best players in the world make mistakes. Just go on with it. Go and try and, you know, affect what if it's been a mistake. Go and affect that. Go and try and get it back. And, but when you get a chance to express yourself, because really that's what you want. You play because you want to enjoy the game. And you can enjoy the game within everything else that coaches are asking you to do. And ultimately, we all want to win. When I was looking through, I didn't realise, but as a player, you had quite a few managers, I think it's fair to say. I, th- I think I had, over, I had over 20 managers in my time. And part of the reason for that, Michael, was, it goes back to what we said about, about the love of the game and wanting to play. Now, 
I, I like to think for, for what I had, I, I made the best of the qualities I had. There were some things that, that I didn't have that if I did, I would have went on to, you know, you'd have been a, a completely different rebel. But I think I get the best of what I had. I mean, I played it just over 10 stone. I was pencil, I was pencil thin. Yeah. Uh, I could run all day. I was, just, I mean, I was a tremendous engine because probably my physique and everything else. But uh, so I could run all day. So I was still running the ninety fourth minute when people were, you know, maybe you know, blown a little bit from from earlier. But what I wasn't, I wasn't lightning quick. I wasn't like rapid speed. Uh, but I could, I could go. So I managed to. If you think about a centre forward, it tends to play, you know, big strong. So I had to make the best of everything I had. And part of it goes back to. I signed for the Martin when I was 13. My two older brothers were. I was supposed to sign for Dundee United. Uh, and my father said no. Uh, because Sean, Sean Fallon, God rest him, Sean, who was George Steen's assistant, mm-hmm. when Celtic won the European Cup, Sean was a director at the Martin. And he'd obviously, we knew the family, knew my father, knew my brothers. And he said, and uh, he'd seen me playing. And he says, oh, he says, my father, I'd love to I'm going to come to the Martin. We are first schoolboy signing. And my dad says, well, he's to go to Dundee United. And so Sean made Sean, a gift of gab. Had a good chat with my dad. So my dad came and said, listen, you're signing with your brothers at the bar. And I said, well, that's fine, dad. That's, you know, no worries. At the end of the day, I'm happy with my brothers. Best thing that happened. So I used to be down two nights a week to, with the bottom part-time. And then the boys would go away and train. And I would go with the, the goalkeeper, a guy called Tom Carson. He was a very good goalie. So I would more or less be shooting at the top on it. Again, having a bit of warm-up until the, the manager needed them for, for the first team. So it was great for me. But when I got to about... 17 or 16, 17 when teams make the decisions. If I was at Dundee United, I would have been released, not because I was a, a poor player, but because I was only five foot four and I was really thin. And Dundee United would have looked and said, you know what, Coyle, he's a good little player, but I've got a good big player. You know, so I'll take the big lap. Yeah. But at the bottom, because you know, it was part time, my brothers were, I was just allowed to potter about, should I say, playing the reserves. And they didn't give me any money, but they kept me with them. Uh, Played the reserves, and then about 18 and a half, I went to about five foot 11 and a half. Never get any bigger physical, but I get tall enough because I could play. And they put me straight into the team. And actually, my debut, I was against Air United. I came on for my older brother, Thomas, who was the captain. I came on with 10 minutes to go. We we're losing 1 0. And the man got a penalty with five minutes to go or three, whatever it was to go. And all the senior players were, oh, I'm not taking They all turned away. They didn't want to take it. And I was quite. Cocky anyway, that's yeah, I'll take that, take the reserves, the uh, penalties, the reserves. So I've could, and I always think back, I managed to score. Hugh Sproul was a goalkeeper, set the wrong way, but I always think back, had you missed that penalty? Because that's the thing in football, you never know what happens. But, but I managed to score it, that was me and the team, and, and just went on from there. So, but the reason I always tell that story is to, to young players, because don't get disillusioned if you are quite small. Everybody grows at different stages. You get taller, you get stronger. So don't think because oh, I'm small and he's bigger. The other thing that will help you, you then as a smaller player, you have to learn how do I overcome the bigger opponent. So it gives you a little bit of football intelligence to solve these problems, which you have to do in your football career because every game presents a different challenge. So I was very fortunate in that respect. And that was me up and running at the bottom. Was it always obvious you were going to be a striker? Because I, I sort of think back, even you know, at, at any level, you sort of go, right, he can score goals, that's him assigned, or he can't score goals, or what do we do with him next? Can I at least kick somebody? You know, so I take it you just had that knack from, from whenever you started? Well, bizarrely enough, no, I was, I was a midfielder. I, okay. I, was field, I was a school captain, played in the left midfield, because my older brother, uh, Joseph, played left midfield, and, uh, and himself and, and Tommy Burns, God rest him, that was like my two, because I was left-sided, and that was the two I always looked at. 
And uh, actually, I'll tell you a funny story because Joe, I mean, my brother Joe, I thought, not because he's my brother, he was just a fantastic player, but one of my mates was telling me last year before the, uh, before the, the COVID, they were in the pub, they were actually, you'll be aware of the pub, the Brazen Head and the Gormals. So it's a well-known pub, big Celtic pub. Anyway, all the boys were in the Gormals and they were chatting away and there was some old timers there and some boys my age, some younger, and they were chatting away about footballers from the Gormals. And one of my pals at school tried to stick up for me and say, I'll tell you what, if you're talking about players for the Gormals, then, then, then Ori Coyle, Ori, Ori must be in amongst that group and everything else. He was different, this and that. And I thought, fair play, I'm sticking up for me because of my pal. Bear in mind, there's some unbelievable players that came from the Gormals. See, so one of the old timers said, Ori Coyle. And my pal said, yeah, yeah, Ori Coyle. Ori Coyle wasn't even the best player in his own house. <laughs> <laughs> he said, what? He says his older brother Joe was different class, and he was. He was, you know. So, uh, but I think that's the kind of humour that we grew up with, and it was brilliant. And it can. So, if anybody thinks that I'm going to murder yourself, you'll soon get brought down the peg, a peg or two there. But uh, yeah. So, uh, but back to your question, yeah, I was a midfielder, and then what happened was because I was quite small at the bottom, then they put me out to the wing to protect me because I was small, and then they brought me into that little half position behind the, the number ten, behind the striker. And then there I'd play, and I could, for whatever reason, I could, even when I was a midfielder, I was always an actual finisher. And if, you, if I look back at my goals, I was never a, a striker that, that leathered everything for power because I didn't have it because of my physique. But what I did have, I had very, very good technique. So if you look at my, my goals, there'll be one or two things. It's either placed right in the corner that the keeper can't get there, or it'll be a pass back and the keeper will pick it up and, because there'll not be enough power to beat the keeper coming straight at him. But everything was more or less in the corners, and that's kind of where I, where I you know, So I think when they seen that, they thought, "Well, oh, as you said, he can score a goal. Let's utilise that at the top end of the pitch." And the other thing I could do, I could run all day. So centre halves, I don't think they particularly like playing against me, not because I was a good player, but because I never gave them a moment, a moment's peace. I was always in about and working hard and and stuff and running channels and what have you. Oh, definitely. And, you know, it's a, a brilliant asset to be able to have. How much of that, obviously coaching can improve anybody, but how much of that is just natural instinct? Do you think that ability to finish? I, I think I think you can help people with their technique in terms of, you know, because scoring goals is, is the hardest thing in football. Mm-hmm. And people, a lot of times, if truth be told, but they go into panic mode. You know? <laughs> but they do, strikers do. Oh, 100%. Yeah, and I think, I think the key I always think with goal scorers is, is learning to have that little bit of composure, learning to have the technique. And, and we can, as we do, we can, uh, we can go through the drills and everything else. And, and all, of course, they'll help. But all of a sudden, when there's 60,000, 70,000 or whatever the crowd is, and then you're in that instant, that's when the stuff that you've, you've helped them with has to overcome. The one thing I do think is an actual God-given gift is, is the anticipation. You know, if, if I think, right, Coyce's a good part of mine, Ali McCoyce and, and, and boys like that, you know, the top strikers. They, because top strikers, people will score goals 25, 30 yards, and we love those goals. But you'll not score them every season. The majority of the goals are scored from the penalty spot to the goal line. That's where you go. So that's where I class what I call goal scorers, not scorers of goals. Those boys have 25 and 30 yards. Scorers of goals, but not natural goal scorers. 12 yards, the penalty spot to the goal line, that's where you find your goal scorers. And that, a lot of the goals in there is anticipation. You know, you sense, oh, they've gone up for a header, where's that ball going to drop? And they find themselves in that position. That's a gift. Now, people will say, oh, he was lucky. He wasn't lucky. He just knew where to be. 
you know, you put yourself in those positions. And so I think that's something that's difficult to coach, that anticipation. You can try and we do, we, we, we little drills here and there and everything else. But I think some of that is like a, a very, very natural gift. But there's no doubt with the technique, there's loads of things you can help people with. It felt like for a while there was loads of ex-defenders becoming managers and, and we almost just expected that. You know, as a, as a former striker coaching players, is it harder for you watching forwards miss those chances than maybe some other people? Because you're thinking, oh, I'll tell you what, boys, if I was still playing. <laughs> I, I think you always do that. Oh, you know, because it was something that was natural to you. That being said, there's other stuff that I couldn't do when you see people doing it. So I think when you move into the, the coaching and the management side, the thing you have to get out of your head is it's, it's nothing to do with what you did or what you could do. It's about helping those players to ultimately to get to the, the end product, to improve the players. If you improve the players, you improve the team. And that's ultimately what the goal is, to make sure that you're as strong a team as possible and everybody's enjoying what they're doing. Just because I don't want to skim past it, because you had a very good playing career and some special, some special times as well. What were the moments that stand out for you and, and will always sort of stick with you? I mean, I get, you're right. I mean, I was very lucky. I've got to say I enjoyed every club and, and, and every manager I played for. And this is the thing that, you know, generations have probably changed because I, times I would have loads of fallouts with my managers. That happens. You know, because that was just the nature of it. Because that's because you were opinionated, you wanted the best of everything else. But I would never, ever, and I never have, if you, anybody's asked me about them, have anything negative to say about them because that's, that's, a, that's a part of football. But nowadays, the way it is with social media and everything else, I mean, there's one or two things. Either you're the best thing since sliced bread, or the next minute you're an absolute dumb one. The truth is, we're probably somewhere in between. We all know a bit about the game, and good players help you to achieve what you want to achieve in terms of managerial. But as a player, I mean, I was really fortunate. I managed to score goals wherever I was. I managed to, you know, I mean, I tell this story, and this is what we're talking about managers, about having a follow a manager. So, Bruce Reuk. Outstanding manager at Bolton Wanderers. Did we always see I, I No. I, and part of it, part of it, probably my, my problem because I always had something to say. And, and Bruce, Bruce was quite a disciplinarian. He wanted it his way. And if I felt aggrieved, like maybe I was left out or took off, I always had something to say. And maybe that was, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take part of the blame for that. But anyway, uh, we went to, uh, we'd have brilliant Bolton team. We're in the championship, trying to get promotion. But we went to the Coca-Cola Cup final against Liverpool. And I played in every round of that. I played in every game in that competition. And Saturday before, we were playing Portsmouth, at Port, Portsmouth away. And on the Friday, we sang Gundy Bergson, mm-hmm. who went on to play for Bolton for many years, an outstanding, outstanding player, but an outstanding man, an absolute brilliant man. So on the Saturday, we went to play Portsmouth, and John McGinley was away in international duty with Scotland. So myself and Mitsu Patalainen played up front. So I was changed at number 11 that day. Gundy Bergson was on the bench at number 12. Anyway, now Portsmouth were beating us 1-0 at half-time. But I'd actually, I felt I'd actually played quite well in the first half. I thought it was kind of our best player. Anyway, Bruce comes in at half-time and absolutely leaves me, leaves me, I swear, leaves me without a name, right? So I just, I bit my tongue for that occasion. Never, I never ever used to say it during the, the talks, bit my tongue. And Gundy Bergson, after he finished tapping me, he says, oh, and I don't understand. You're our best player. I says it's okay, good me. I've worked it out. The cup finals next week. So Bruce the gaffer's going to play John McGinley, makes you part of lining. So they lay those into me just now. It's easy to leave me out because he says that I've got a poor game. Mm-hmm. He says, oh, I don't understand. Anyway, without the second half, if I could play any better, I did. 
beat two or three men along the byline, square the ball for somebody to tap in. We drew one each, which was a good good result at Portsmouth. That. Anyway, came in at full time. Again, wiped the floor moon. Honestly, Michael left me without an end. So I'd read the script anyway. So, but Goody Bear said, never even got on. Goody stayed on strict. So we came in the Monday, the cup final was the Sunday, and Bruce says, I'm going to name the starting 11. I'll name the subs later in the week. Starting 11, bum bum bum. Strikers, McGinley, Pat So I'd read the script. So I turned to Goody and I said, told you, wow, incredible. So anyway, we trained all that week. Then on the Saturday, when we were ready to leave, we were training. Bruce wasn't at training. Bruce had travelled down, he was going to meet us in a hotel. Colin Todd was taking the training. So training finished, Colin Todd says, oh, I've been asked to name the subs. So that time it was a, a, a goalkeeper and two outfield subs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the outfield goalkeeper, you'll know, Northern Ireland, and uh, the goalkeeper, Aidan Big Aidan Davidson, yeah. played for Northern Ireland many, many yeah. times, Big Aidan. So uh, Aidan Davidson, and we expected the other two subs to be uh, Mark Patterson, who'd been the club captain, left midfielder, and obviously myself as a striker. So he says, uh, okay, subs, Aidan Davidson, Mark Patterson, Gundy Merkson. Now, Gundy had signed a Friday before, hadn't even come on against Portsmouth. And Gundy looked at me and says, I'm sorry, and I said, it's nothing to do with you, Gundy. I mean, you don't pick the team. And I said to Colin, are you serious? And oh, don't shoot the messenger and all that. So I was, I was blazing. So I stormed in the dressing room. I was, oh. So again, I was in my shower, came out of my shower, ready. And I said, this is true. I thought to myself, do you know what? I'm going home, I'm not even going to the game. You know, I'm travelling down to Wembley. How could you do that to me? And not do that to me, but how could you not tell me to my face? That was the thing that was that was that was bugging me. Just tell me. So uh, get ready. McGinley came in as my partner. She's what are you doing? I said, Oh John. He says, Oh, I can't never think about it. So I sat down for a couple of minutes and I, and I thought, do you know what? He was right. So with new suit shirts and ties and final and all that, put the new suit shirt tie on, put a smile on my face, went down because I thought it wasn't the boys that picked the team, I still had to be there for them. So I went down, was cajoling, encouraging everything else. That was always my nature. As much as inside, it was, it was, it was killing me to think that mm. it treated me like that. But anyway, the boys played the game. I don't even remember the cup final. Steve McManaman was unplayable. Liverpool beat Bolton 2-1. Tom O'Allen Thompson scored a wonderful goal for us. Mm-hmm. And they, anyway, they, they beat us 2-1. McManaman, as I say, it was his cup final. He was unplayable. So we came back from that. With another three games after that, he never spoke to me. He never put me in the 14. I just got like a head down, just walked hard the training, walked hard the training. The fourth game, he brought me back in. So I think there was about eight games to go at the end of the season. Brought me back in, started, played very well. I played every game to the end of the season. The reason I mention that story is because the final game was the playoff final at Wembley in front of 80,000. Started the game, we're 2 nothing down against Reading. They missed a penalty, but we came back to win 4-3. I scored to make it 2-1 to get us back in the game. The reason I mention the story is to people because when, and that's a bit about football, how you have to be mentally strong. When you get, when you get those difficult moments, it'd have been easy to walk away and say, but you know, you, sometimes you just got to stick your head down and go on where, work hard, take back in the team. And you mentioned the question was about beautiful moments in football. Had I not done that, I would never have had that moment in football. So that's how quickly football can change. And in answer to your question, I know it's a long-winded story, but that was a special moment to play a part of the Bolton team that get promoted to the Premier League and, and Wembley in front of 8,000, all your family there, my mum, my dad, God rest them, uh, brothers, sisters, everybody to see it and scored a goal as well. Uh, and it was just a marvellous occasion. Uh, so from a, from a playing perspective, yeah, that, that was an outstanding moment. There's two sides to that as well because 
had you have, you know, thrown the head up properly, not gone to that final, that could have been the end of things for you, and it could have, you know, blacklisted you know other managers in the future, going, oh, he's a he's a problem player, but at the same time, it could have gone against your manager because, obviously, you were a big part of ultimately that promotion, and if you had have taken that approach, yes, it would have gone badly for you, it might have gone badly for Bolton as well. I think I think Bruce was a like football knowledge was outstanding. Did I like the way he treated some players? No. But I said that. I'm not saying anything now I never said to him. I mean, I, I spoke to him to his face about this, so he knows that. But I've got a tremendous respect for him and admiration because of his football knowledge. And I think in that era as well, I think he knew that no matter how like, I felt left out, he knew that I was a team player. He knew I would still come back and give everything for my teammates and everything else. So maybe he used it, maybe he didn't. But for me, I didn't find it particularly nice. There was a few others I felt was kind of we were kind of compromised a bit as well. Uh, but that's just the nature of football. You live and learn. And that's why now, Mike, I'll be honest, when I'm speaking to my players, if, you know, some of my players might come and say, oh, I didn't like this, didn't like that. But they'll never ever say I told them a lie because I tell them if I'm leaving them out and I tell them the reason why, only because from my own experience. I wouldn't want people with that feeling that you didn't know why. Now, I always say, you might not agree with this, but this is my reasoning. If we want to chat about it, we can do it next week and, and take it from there. And, you know, the older you get, you start to absorb these things and really understand them a bit better at the time. It's the heat of the moment. You know, when you're out on the pitch as a player, were you able to sort of bask in the glory of, you know, stepping out onto Celtic Park for the first time or lining up against Rangers at a ferocious Ibrox? Those sort of moments which, you know, now would put the, the hairs up on your arms and all the rest of it. But as a player, did you fully appreciate it, do you think? Well, I loved, I've got to say, I loved the big games. I mean, I, I loved it. And I was very fortunate in my career that in those big moments, I seemed to do well in those big games, whether that was a mentality or whatever, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I actually remember uh, uh, going to, and I big Alan McLeish thing me for Motherwell. Motherwell at the bottom of the league, and I came in, scored a few goals, but we got from the bottom, but we're still in the second bottom place. And we actually went to Ibrox for rain, if Rangers beat us, it was a May Bank holiday, if Rangers beat us that day, They'd won nine in a row. And Rangers spent about £50,000 in hospitality to bring all their ex-players because it was like a foregone conclusion. Oh, we're going to have a party. It's mother. We're down at the bottom. We'll do our nine in a row. Loudrums, Gascoigne, Walters, the manager, outstanding. Koisty. I mean, it was just an array of talent. Uh, but we had to win for our own. We had to get out of the playoff spot. It used to be at the bottom, you know, uh, at that point. And we actually went. We won the game 2-0 and I scored both the goals. And obviously, it's a Celtic man. Then that was, that, was a, that was a huge thing. But I never went there as a Celtic man. I went there as a motherwell man to, to try and help us win, to get us away from those positions. So those big games, I mean, I, I seem to come alive in them. Uh, even I remember coming back to Dundee United from Bolton, because we went to the Premier League with Bolton. I started two games. I was on the bench about 10 and 11 games, and I just wanted to play, Michael. And I remember going to call and told who was the manager, Roy McFarlane, at the time. I said, listen, I just want to play. I don't want to be, you know, I'm not 19, 20, where you can sit on the bench and bide your time. I need to play, I just, and uh, I dropped salary and everything else, but went to Dundee United and scored the winning goal in the playoff final that year to take Dundee so, United back to the Premier League. So there was always those big moments I had in my career. I was very fortunate that I seemed to love the big games and enjoy those occasions. And you went for decent money at the time, but looking at the way you know transfer fees have gone now, <laughs> if you were to try and explain that to you know grandkids or whatever, they'd be like, they paid nothing for you. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think I went from Bolton to Dundee United for about four hundred thousand pounds, yeah. which, which which was probably a decent sum at the time. But if you look at it now, no disrespect, but 
in comparison to what, and I think that's been because of the Premier League money, you know, the, the TV deal, everything's escalated, hasn't it? But listen, it, it was never about transfer fees. For me, it was just about enjoying the game, doing the very best for you and the team you were at, and your teammates. And, and I was told that, you know, that's one thing that anybody I played with will recognise. He might not be a particularly good player, but I tell you what, he was a team player. He gave everything he could for his team. And that's the kind of voice, particularly as a manager, I want in my team. You gave a little clue about it earlier on, you know, with being shorter in your early teens and stuff like that, you had to develop that extra bit of intelligence. So did the coaching idea, did that sort of start early too then? You, you got that bit of intelligence. Some other boys are, are just naturally gifted footballers, but not doing too much of this. You've got a bit of the wiles about you as well. So onto the coaching badges. Yeah, I mean, we were lucky as well because I think I was I was at Edge at the time. So I would have been 20, 22 or 23 when into the Premier League with Edge. But the SFA had a brilliant initiative, Michael, that they were, you know, let's for example, say Wednesday, I think Wednesday it tends to be our day off. So the SFA came up with an initiative that they were going to do the B, the B license during the season. So on your day off, you could go and attend and okay. do it through the season. It was brilliant. That's smart, so, yeah. Yeah, myself, Sandy Stewart, Jimmy Boyle, Kenny Black as well from there. But uh, I remember Stephen Presley being there, Bobby Williamson being there, loads of boys like that. that uh, and so... Went that whole season. By the end of that season, I was 23, I had my B licence. So, brilliant. it was brilliant. And then, having the B licence, that, that then allowed you to go into the A. So, we finished the season, we down that summer, uh, myself, Sandy Boyle, yeah, particular, and we did the A introductory. So, at the age of 23 and a half, I was only one step away from completing my, my whole A licence. But, by doing that, it gives you a little bit more, you know, thinking. And I was lucky because the dressing room I was in, with all boys like that, because we were at every provincial club, we weren't at one of the elite clubs. So I'm not saying that it mattered more to us, and I'm not saying that boys at those big clubs didn't chat about the stuff that we did. But we're probably thinking, well, when our season, when our career finishes, you're not certainly able to retire, that's for sure. What would you like to be doing? And the next aspect would be, of course, to stay in the game if possible and develop that, that coaching now. So a little bit about that. And even on the back of that as well, I mean, I played till I was nearly 40. because mm-hmm. I loved the game. But from the age of 34, I was a player coach. So I was able to learn the other side of that while I was still playing. And I was really fortunate in that respect, you know. So, uh, for example, at Falkirk, myself and Big Yogi, Big John Hughes, uh, we were player coaches to Ian McCall. And then he left in the uh, beginning of January to take the Dundee United job. Mm-hmm. So myself and Yogi became player co-managers. So, we're, and I've got to say, not being bad, I mean, I was the top goal scorer in the, in the championship of the Magic. Yogi was the best centre-half in the league. So, but we still had to, out with playing, we still had to, you know, coach and manage. So what we did, we actually got Brian Lace to come and join us from Erby. I went to Sandy again and stole somebody else from him. He's always, <laughs> accused, me, always accused me of stealing his players when I eventually went to St. Johnston. But uh, at that time, and uh, Brian Lace came in because when me and Yogi were on the field, we needed somebody in the side to be able to, 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 to take charge of the team from the side of the field. Because when you're on there as a player, you can't be doing everything. You need to focus on what you need to do as a player. And it worked out brilliant because we won the league by nine points. So I was player co-manager. I was the top scorer in the division. I won the, I think it was the Bells time, I won the Bells player of the year. It was just an unbelievable season for somebody that was 36 coming up for 37. And you get those magical years in football. So that was special as well as a player. Were you giving the team talks praising yourself? <laughs> what a great performance, <laughs> Owen. What a performance, son. Oh, no, I would do that, but I would make sure I told Jogi to do it. <laughs> it's, 
I mean, you're very lucky, and obviously people had the faith in you to, to give you those opportunities as well, yeah. coming towards the end of your playing days. And as you say, you were able to play on uh, for a, a great while as well. But that education, you know, in the bag. So by the time you were fully committed to being, you know, an out-and-out manager, you'd already done your apprenticeship, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was a, that was a key element because you're learning the other side of the stuff before you actually kind of thrust right into it because it is difficult uh, and, and particularly in football now, Michael, because you see this, when boys go from being a player straight to being a manager, uh, it's a huge challenge and it's difficult and if they don't get it right, and this is the thing that the, 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 I think is very harsh, if it doesn't work out for them, they don't really get another opportunity because they're kind of dismissed which I think is wrong as well because there could be a number of reasons for that. But that's the nature of football these days and social media, everything goes with it. Somebody comes in, oh, he didn't do well, are you? And then the boy doesn't get another chance. I think that's quite harsh. So by learning that side of things, it kind of helped a little bit to make that transition into going in. Obviously, I had success with Yogi at Falkirk. We won the championship, so that's great as well. Gives you that little bit of boost as well. But then going into St Johnston, which was a, a, a big club, St Johnston were nearly relegated out of the championship into League One, so we had a big job to do. But obviously, it, it couldn't have went any better. It went really, really well. We started to build that club up again. Uh, came so close. I mean, the Gretna won. In the January, we were 15 points behind Gretna, but we're on our mark and we're on. We went to both semi-finals in the cup against Celtic and against the Birmingham. We were outstanding. And even in the last day, our game had finished against Hamilton. We'd won. Uh, Hamilton, the Astro stuff. They hadn't lost all season, we beat them 4 2. But Gretna had kicked off six minutes later against North Ross County. So we had to wait in the dress room, and it was 0 0, finished 0 0. We'd won the league. And James Grady scored in the 94th minute of, you know, fourth minute injury time, because Ross County had to win. They got a corner, so they put everybody in the box, nobody back, because they had to win to stay up. The corner broke, and James, it was 3 v 1 away to. Anyway, but that experience as a manager, it goes back to the one earlier about a player. You do one or two things, Michael. You feel sorry for yourself or you get yourself up in the morning prepared to do something about it. And that's what we did. As horrible as it was, I thought, right, we're going to get this in Johnston going again. We're going to look to improve them again. Uh, and, and, and that's what we did. Obviously, the following, I'd left by the, the October because obviously Burnley came calling. Uh, and actually, it, I left two days before the cup final, for the Challenge Cup final. I take St. Johnston. So Sandy was coming with me to Burnley. So I said to Sandy, well, you stay on, because we picked the team around me. You stay on, you know, make sure the boys win the cup, because I didn't want to believe they don't win the cup. I wanted something tangible for, for the chairman, Jeff Brown, who's such an outstanding man. So my first game for Burnley was against Stoke. It was Burnley's 125th anniversary, mm-hmm. and they wore a, a strip like Argentina. We drew 0 0 with Stoke, who were fourth in the league, so it was a good point. And I drove straight up the road uh, to, to Scotland, because the final was going to be played at, at Dens Park. And I was there, myself, my wife, Kerry. We sat in director's box, making sure that the boys win, which they did, thank God. So because I hate to thought that after everything they put in, you know, you leaving, I think the cup final, we didn't, the boys were brilliant. And Derek helped Sandy that day as much as Derek was the, was the captain. And then went on, obviously, to, to take the job at McInnes. So, yeah, it couldn't have worked out any better. Must have been a strange moment, though, as well. You know, timing in football can be a, a, a wonderful thing or an awful thing. And, and just to, to not be the manager for that final, having put in all the work, as much as you're proud for the players and all the rest of it, a wee bit bittersweet, maybe. No, no, no. I think, obviously, you'd love to be out there with them. But that time, when all said and done, when that whistle blew, I was the Burnley manager. Uh, but, 
of course, my heart, my soul was there with the, with the boys wanting to make sure that they, you know, for them, because mm-hmm. ultimately, that's what it's about your players. You want them to get something tangible for all their hard work and everything else. And I've kicked, I've got to say, I've kicked the head in every ball that game <laughs> because St. Johnson went 3 nothing up. Actually, the Dunfermline manager that day was Stephen, Stephen Kenny. <laughs> Stephen was the manager at Dunfermline. Yeah. And uh, uh, Dunfermline came back to 3-2. And honestly, I was heading balls clear. I was... But anyway, the boys managed to win the game three two. So, you know, my only thought was please, you know, let, let them win and let them get the, the success that they've, they've worked hard for. When you watch a game of football, are you still in, you know, football mode yourself? You know, football manager mode. Can you not switch off? Are you are you very well, animated? Yeah, when when I go, yeah, I go and, 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 and you know, my boy Young Boy, we go to a lot of games together. We actually went the other week to uh, to Accrington Sunderland mm-hmm. uh, and. When I go, as much as I'm still, you know, you're looking at players, of course you have somebody to cook, but you're a football fan. You want to be entertained, you want to, you know, and, and every time, you know, Aidan, obviously, Aidan McGee, every time Aidan got the ball, you know something's going to happen because he's such yeah, a talented player. player. So yeah. I, still love, I still love that feeling, you know, when you get somebody that can make a difference, you get excited because you love the game. Uh, but of course, any game you go to, you know, with your, with your head on, you're still looking, right, who catch your eye? Because somewhere down the line, that player might become available, might be within your reach. So you're always, you know, there's a number of things that's running through your head when you're at games. Was it St. Johnston when you were going for the St. Johnston job, you made a, a dubious cup of coffee? Oh, my goodness. I mean, that, that so, <laughs> I, I, listen, I was down in Glasgow. We, we just finished that. Me and Sandy had been at a reserve game against St. Mirren, and we were in the car driving by, and Jeff Brown called me, and Sandy was driving. And I said, hi, he says, oh, it's Jeff Brown. I said, oh, hi, Mr. Chairman. He said, listen, he says, I'd like to speak to you about, about our job. And I said, but I've not applied for your job, Mr. Chairman. He says, no, no, I know you haven't, but I know the family. Your brother Thomas played for me, which he did. He says, I know, what you, you know your, your principles, your more. I know how the family work, what you stand for and everything else. I, mean, I know you from your career as a player. We tried to sign you, which they did two seasons before I went to Falkirk. And Billy Stark had tried to sign me. I says, that's right. He says, and I've seen obviously what you've done at Falkirk. You come highly recommend everybody you speak to. They're very glowing about you. I'd love to speak to you. I says, well, yeah, I'd love the opportunity, Chairman. And Sandy's, he's like that, he's driving, he's the manager. I think, well, what's happening here? So he said, right, I'll come to Glasgow to meet you. I said, no, you don't have to. I says, well, actually, I'm actually on my way up to, uh, to Dunkeld. I've got a holiday lodge there that I bought when I was at Dundee United. I says, Easter holidays, my wife and the kids are already up there. I said, I'll be home in about, uh, about an hour. He said, right, I'll call you in an hour. I said, okay, so I so, come off the phone. Sandy says, I said, Jeff Brown wants me to speak to him. St. John's, you Sandy. He said, well, that's a great opportunity. He says, oh, he says, I'll be left in the lurch again. He said, but I understand. So he just lost Kerry Black maybe you know, a couple of months before that. So anyway, I drove up, get in, I said to Kerry, I said, hey, St. Johnson, Chairman Jeff Brown's coming out to see me. She went, Oni, it's torrential rain. I said, no, I said, but can you take the kids out a walk or something? She went, so she was blazing. She gets them on the raincoats and all that, oh, and the, the buggy for the wee one and everything else. And takes the kids a walk down the, the river to So anyway, the chairman comes in. But of course, when he comes in, you want to make a good impression. So he comes in and says, hi, Mr. Chairman, get through to the seated area, put through. The little kitchen area we had, so this is in the holiday one. And he uh, so would you like a tea or coffee? He says, oh, I'd love a coffee. And I think to myself, oh, shit, we don't drink coffee. <laughs> oh, we, drink, we drink tea, drink loads of tea. Yeah. So I'm looking for coffee. Anyway, eventually I found the coffee, made the tea, coffee, milk, sugar, sat down well. And... Over an hour, he's like just chatting away back and forth about football. It was so natural, so flat. I got a great feel for it as he did. So anyway, he finished. He said, listen, Owen, I've loved the chat. I'll be in touch with you sooner rather than later. He said, brilliant, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. He didn't give too much away. That's what he said. 
So he left. So I've checked my mobile. Ten missed calls from Kerry wanting back in. My mobile was in silent. So I phoned and says, "Oh, that's it for this." Thank God for that. These kids are so. So Kerry comes there and the kids, kids were soaked through. Kerry soaked the the rain that way. It's still running down your nose and it's trickling down. So she said, "That better be worth it." I said, "Kerry, it couldn't have went any better." I said, "The only thing he threw me at the start." She went, "How?" I said, "Well, he asked for a coffee." I said, "Could I find a coffee?" But I eventually found it. And she looks and says, "We don't have coffee." I says, "Yeah, yeah, we do." She went, "That's Bristol gravy, you clown." <laughs> I, I made him a mug that because we drink big mugs, a mug that size, and Bristol gravy with milk and sugar. Oh, and he drank a lot. So <laughs> I was so I the phone. I thought I need to phone him. So I phoned him. And me, Jeff's a farmer anyway. No, that makes it no disrespect to farmers, but they, they, they boys can drink their coffee and the the bovril and what have you. So anyway, I said, Chairman. I said, uh, I said, I've got apologies. He was it, son? I said, that wasn't coffee, I mean, it was Bristol gravy. He says, yeah, I thought it was a funny tying off it. He says, anyway, well, I've got you. I want to offer you the job. So there was a method, there was a method in my madness, Michael. A method in my madness. What a gentleman he must have been to drink the whole thing as well. <laughs> well, 100%. But not only that, and I think anybody that's in Johnston will tell you, the boys that were there, Derek and, and then Tommy and Stevie Lomas and boys like that were there. An outstanding man and an outstanding chairman. He knew, as young managers, which we all were, every one of us, he knew you were going to make mistakes, but he allowed you to make them as long as you never made them again. And he was always hands on. He would come to reserve games with you. I've got to say, an outstanding man. And his son, obviously, Steve, has followed that on. Steve's now the chairman there. Real football and family poured the amount of money they've poured into St Johnston to make it the club it is, the stadium. And a very clever man, but an outstanding man. So much time for Jeff Brown. Have you made a coffee since for anybody? <laughs> well, I do, I do tell them the story so they won't ask and then they don't have to pick it. <laughs> See, that's, there's method of the madness as well there. <laughs> um, you mentioned some great Northern Ireland names there. When you were at Burnley, obviously, you had big Kyle Lafferty. I did. I had Kyle. And also, actually, uh, uh, Billy was helping me. Billy Bingham was doing oh, a lot. Oh, yeah, of course. Scouting. Billy was doing a lot of scouting for us when, when, when I came into Burnley as well. And, yeah, I, I love Kyle. I mean, he... Came into his training every day, he loved it. I mean, the players liked him. He's got a really nice way with him, as you know, a good personality and everything else. And uh, and obviously far travelled now in respect of his career. But when I came in, obviously there'd been interest in him already from Fulham. I think Laurie Sanchez had tried to sing him in the Premier League. And I said to him, come in, just do what you're doing. And if the interest comes, I'll be the first to tell you. And if it's the right club for you, then then you'll glow with our blessing. As long as it helps the club, it helps you. And I kept my word. I said to him, told them there was interest because believe it or not and you might know this but before Glasgow Rangers came calling Glasgow Celtic were all over were all mm-hmm. over Kyle and Peter had, Peter Law had been in touch with me for four and five months since coming in about they were keeping tabs on Kyle and I said well listen there's no problem with that the chairman's agreed we've gave Kyle a word that if you get to the the fee that the club's looking for Kyle will go with the club's blessing everybody's very upfront about it so Peter, being Peter, he's is. Peter's a, a wheeler dealer, very good at what he does, Peter. So Peter, and, and, and at the time, Celtic had Derek Ryerman, who mm. I'd liked at Burnley and came in. And I thought Derek, player. I thought he was a very talented player, Derek. And I thought, you know, I thought he could do well at Burnley if Kyle was going. So I said to Peter, you know, my valuation of Derek at the time was about half a million. So I said to Peter, well, if you get to three and a half plus Derek Ryerman, then, then the deal will get done, the chairman will greet it. So Peter's like, oh, Derek Ryan is worth a million. And Peter, you know, as, as he does, because that's what you do. So uh, he'd offer different things. Anyway, it, it was nothing that my chairman was going to agree on. But in fairness to Rangers, I think it might be Campbell Ogilvy at, at the time. Anyway, they called me 
and he said, Owen, uh, what about Kyle Lafferty? I said, well, I've got to say, Glasgow Celtic have been on and they're all over him. And, yeah, but what's it going to take? I said, well, it's going to take £4 million. Pounds. I said, it's going to certainly take three and a half guaranteed plus half a million that achievable guarantees that not that you're going to win the Champions League, but 20 appearances, 40 appearances, something mm-hmm. that the chairman thinks, yeah, that's achievable. And 15 minutes later, he called him back and he says, okay, they'll do three and a half million in like, two or three installments uh, plus uh, half a million over 20, 40 and like 50 appearances. I said, well, for me, I think my chairman will agree, agree that. Let me, let me go to him. So I phoned my chairman. The chairman says, yeah, let's get it done. So I swear within 20 minutes, that deal was agreed. Because obviously Rangers were desperate for Kyle at the time. Yeah. And Celtic liked them, but they their own valuation. They're obviously using Derek Ryder as a make weight as well. And my chairman felt, well, I don't need a make weight. I'm getting the money. It helps with the cash flow of the club and everything else. And that's what happened. Kyle then obviously went, went to Rangers. Which, to be fair to Kyle, he was a Rangers man. That, that's, where he wanted, that's where he wanted to be. And then... Uh, and I think he ended up winning a couple of leagues and everything else. And, you know, and even then, he scored, I mean, and I look out for him all the time. He got a hat-trick the other day there as well. So it's great to see him. I mean, he's, he's a, I love him as a boy. I think he's larger in life and everything else. And, uh, and there's no doubt with the ability and the talent he has. And, uh, you know, he's scored goals everywhere he's been. And, uh, yeah, but very, very good lad. I can't imagine that's too common for a transfer to be done that quickly, that smoothly. <laughs> yeah, not, and that's what it was because normally uh, there is different you know, negotiations that take place. But I think in fairness to Rangers, when we say, well, listen, this is what it's going to take. Mm-hmm. But of course, they knew there was other interest. You know, not only from Celtic, but some English clubs had been sniffed about and nothing that concrete that would have been. And I think they thought, right, let's get, let's get the deal done. Maybe it was our number one target for that summer, who knows? But they certainly moved it very quickly. And that was agreed as quickly as that. It seems like from other interviews I've seen you do, you still have a real a big affinity for Burnley and you look back fondly on your time there. Uh, oh, listen, Burnley is a, it's such a special club. It's, it's a unique club, I've got to say that. It's a, and you don't realise that until you come into the club. Because it's like players as well. We, we're full of admiration when we see players from afar. He's a good player. But when you get to work with them on a daily basis, that's when you see ultimately the real quality they have. And that's a bit like Burnley. You know it's a good club. You've, you know, you've been there and you played against them and everything else. But until you get into the fabric in that club, the people at the club, the fans at that club. Now, obviously since leaving, I've been receiving in the rut stick a couple of times as well. But, and listen, I get that. But that takes nothing away. I mean, I've got to tell you, this is a truly special club. And Sean will tell you that. Anybody that's been there, I mean, Eddie Howe's been there and the boys are you know, quite topical at the moment. Obviously, Eddie's been mentioned with the Glasgow Celtics and, and what have you. But any, everyone will tell you how special that club is. When you walk through the doors, you get that feeling and they, they love their club, they're passionate about it. And when I went in, I think one of the jobs, because when I went in, Steve had been the manager, Steve Cottrell, who's a very good manager and a really good man, somebody I've got a lot of time for. Steve had brought some, some good players to the club. But they'd been on a, a poor a poor run of form at home. And uh, and maybe that was in it. And obviously when that happens, you know, if crowds start to drop, then they decided it was going to be a change. And Brendan, Brendan Flood, who uh, Brendan was at the time was Brendan was pouring all the money into the club to you know keep them going because Barry Kilby, the chairman, him and his directors already put previous money in to keep the club going mm-hmm. because you know that's what directors at that time had to do. Uh, but Brendan came in and he was a, a clear vision of what he wanted. He was a Burnley man through and through, a clear vision of what he wanted to do. Uh, and even with the name, you know, Brendan Flood, he's, he's, his family's off Irish as well. So, and when I got to speak to him, we had you know, really a lot in common. And 
Uh, he'd seen the work I'd done at St Johnston and wanted me on board, and that's how it came about. But when I came in, I've got to tell you that the feeling you get, you just know when you walk through the doors, this is a special club. Our first game of the match was 0-0 against Stoke, and then we went on the, the, the Tuesday and the Saturday, we were playing Watford away and Charlton away. So when I looked, when I think back on my fixtures going into it, Stoke, Stoke were fourth in the league, Watford were first, Charlton were second. That was my first three games, and two of them away from home. And you're thinking, what are you going to here? But we went, we beat Watford, we beat Charlton. So, of course, that gets you the goodwill straight away. Because I, I dare say a number of the fans when they look and thought, going quite comfortable with Johnston coming to Burnley, who's this? You know, because they're kind of steeped in the English football, don't understand so much about the Scottish and what have you. But anyway, uh, but what we did, we started, you know, we, 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 we let kind of got our message through to the fans, what we were all about. And I think the Burnley fans recognise when they see people pouring their heart and their soul into the job on the field, off the field, then they'll back them to the hill. And that's what they do. They're an unbelievable support for that. And all of a sudden, we started to build, as you know, the momentum, get a real fortress. Nobody wanted to come and play at Burnley. All the big Premier League teams came in the, the cup competitions. We knocked them out. So not only in the following year did we go and, and have an unbelievable promotion, but the big scalps that we took along the way in the cup competitions as well. So much so that we were in the Premier League. I mean, I, I had 10 games, 10 games at home in the Premier League with Burnley. We won five, we drew four. We only lost one game at home in my tenure in the Premier League. And that game itself, Brian Jensen actually uh, turned his ankle and Jugo Rodriguez was against Wigan, tapped the ball into an empty net. We never lost that game either. But that was the players. Hopefully we were doing a little bit but the fans are playing a huge part. I mean, the atmosphere at Tough Moor, I've got to tell you, it's, it's the best atmosphere I've ever encountered. And people say, but there's only 24,000 there. You're playing in front of 100,000. Yeah, very much so. But the atmosphere that those fans generate at that stadium, and you see it now. I mean, Sean, Sean's got Tough Moor, a fortress. Sean's done an unbelievable job year after year. And the fans, they back him to the hill. And, and even when you have a difficult run, they're still there for you. And it's so evident. It's just a brilliant club, brilliant people. And the support... The support there is incredible. And that's one of the things about the sport as well, because, you know, from afar, we all know the, the glamour teams, if you want to look at it that way. But once you start to look into the clubs, their histories, the fan base, all the rest of it, it's where the romance of football comes back. It's something which has kind of been lost a wee bit from the game when you look at how the FA Cups maybe treat it now. But there's still a great romance to football. Um, and, and when you look at clubs like Burnley, you can still feel that raw passion and, and the appreciation of it wasn't that long ago there were hard times. Absolutely. And then, previous to that, what about the Champions England? Yeah. You know, and the, and the Irish connection, you know, Jimmy yeah. McIlroy and all those, but oh, it's it amazing. And that's why when I went into the club and obviously you start then looking at the history of the club and seeing what they're all about, it just, it's some wonderful, wonderful time. And the people look, if they look to now and think, you know, when you look at the elite clubs with the money they've we've got, and people look and say, how is it possible that Burnley were the Champions England? And, you know, Preston and people are, because they were, because they were the fabric of the game. And they, and, and from being the Champions England, then they've troubled times. Burnley nearly went out of the league, you know, but they still had a team to stay in the league in the bottom division. And, and some good managers, some good people started to build them up again. You know, Stan Ternan, boys like that, started to build them up, build them up. And then when they get them back now to the elite level, it's fantastic. And uh, just a brilliant club. It's a great story, it really is. And uh, among the, the sculpts of Burnley, you got a win over Fergie, didn't you? We did. I mean, our first... Uh, because when the fixtures came out, 
you look, our first fixture was Stoke away. And we had that. In the pre-season, we'd got them fit, but we didn't look fluent in the pre-season. And I remember saying to Sandy, wow, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a tough season, everything else with quality. We went to Stoke, we lost the first game at Stoke, but we played really well in the game. Football-wise, we were the better team. But Stoke, to be fair, they used a Premier League experience and they scored two set plays, a corner and a long throw from Rui Del up against us. But we were delighted after the game because we knew we could stand toe-to-toe. We knew we could do well because the boys had played well. So we took great belief from that. But then, of course, our first home game in the Premier League was, was against Manchester United. And Sir Alex had been brilliant for me because I'd signed Chris Eagles from them the year before. They helped me with that deal. And he told me a number of things. He kept in touch with me all during the year. Oh, you're doing well. Keep it going. You can see he's getting promoted. He was so supportive. And that's a bit people don't know because out, out with his outstanding managerial stuff, he's an unbelievable man. He's got so much time for young coaches and other managers. Uh, I mean, he's uh, Sir Alex is a, a truly outstanding man, really is. And when we got promoted, when I won the playoff final, uh, he sent me a text. Oh, and remember, a couple of nice bottles of red wine when I come to visit with me and my staff. So I thought, well, that's the least I can do. So, of course, the first game, the home game, and Darren Bentley, who's still at Burnley, Dan, I said to Dan, Dan, you're going to have to get to town, get me two really nice bottles of red wine for Sir Alex and staff coming to a Tuesday night game. And I was in, I was in for midday, 12 o'clock, getting prepared. So anyways, Darren comes back, these two nice bottles of red wine, four or five hundred quid, they weren't cheap. Anyway, he's giving me the wine notes. And I thought, well, I'm never, I'm never carrying this off. I mean, I'm total. I've never, never had an alcoholic drink in my life. I say, I'll never carry this off. So, in the wine notes, and only Darren was there. I actually went to put the two bottles of red wine in the fridge. And he says, What are you doing? What are you doing? I said, what, What's wrong with that? He went, No, no, they can't go in there. They've got to breathe at room temperature. So, only was there. That would have been a disaster. But anyway, <laughs> we went out, we played the game, and Robbie Blake scored a, a 25 yard wonder volley in the top corner. Won the game 1 0. I think they were the three time champions. I think they were going for mm. four league titles in a row. And uh, but that gave not only the team but the club the support huge confidence that because we were everybody had written us off we were going to be the whipping boys or Burnley the smallest budget ever known in the Premier League which we did have but and, and actually Sir Alex gave us one of the, the biggest compliments he could possibly give after the game because we ran into the press and uh, and this shows shows how humble how magnanimous he is just outstanding man they said to him. How is it possible that the three times champions of England come to Burnley with a team of value of X amount, just a few million pounds against a team worth three, four hundred million pounds? How is it possible they can beat you tonight? And Sir Alex says, well, that's the edge of football. He says, but what they did have is something that money can't buy. They have an unbelievable spirit and money can't buy that. And it's just a fantastic compliment. So it was nothing about the quality. He knew the spirit of the team and the boys and the support we had as well. And it was just an outstanding night for the club. And did he enjoy the wine in the end? You know what he did? He sat there because I, I remember I was sitting, must have been easily over an hour, and we weren't really chatting about football, we are just chatting about things because he's very well read, he's very worldly, Sir Alex, and chatting about different things. And I remember one of the, the staff coming in and says, hey, boss, uh, you know, the boys that's saying they must have been waiting. He says, yeah, they'll wait. Next time they might, they might win, we'll get away sharper. He <laughs> <laughs> was, was brilliant. So five minutes after that then, but yeah, he sat, we him in staff, and, and that, I think uh, that experience, what it showed me was that was, that's how champions behave. You know, he never came in, he wasn't in a strop because he was disappointed and angry that his team had lost with that, but he was a man that was one of the best managers, if not ever, 
been in the game, and he was prepared to sit with a young manager and the staff, chat away about everything, and either or over an hour after he's lost the game. And for me, that that's a true sign of champions. That tells you about the class and the quality it has as a human being. No, that's quality stuff. Um, and, and with all that being said, then, you know, there'll be Burnley fans maybe uh, watching this or listening to this and going, why, Owen, why? <laughs> you know, why did you, why did you make the move? It was all going yeah. so well. No, I've said, I've said this before, and ultimately it, it came down to circumstances. Uh, because at the time, we would started really well. Then we'd drawn some games that we'd drawn some games that I felt we could have won. So I knew that come the January window, I needed a lot of help. And then at that time, Brendan had put all the money in. That was a terrible housing crash at that time and, mm-hmm. and property. And, and Brendan's thing was everything to do with property. So he was in a tough time. And, uh, and it's just, it's probably more down to circumstances because if there was only one team you'd have left for, it could only mean Bolton because that's who I'd played for and had an affinity with them as well. So I was trying to get a couple of players in for Burnley for the January window because I'd poured my heart and soul in there. I wanted to make sure as well as the players that I stayed in the league as well. And uh, anyway, there was a, I think there was a lot of miscommunication if we're honest as well. So when I said, they said, no, I don't think we'll have the money to get those players and what have you. And then one thing, and then it came to the point that I thought, you know, not that you've been taken for granted, that's the wrong way to do it, but how is that going to help me to get where we want to be? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I still felt that Burnley were in a decent place. So, you know, listen, you can look at things like hindsight and everything else. Was it tough? Absolutely. Because... They'll tell you, the ones out there are no, I put my heart and soul in that job. I love the club. I've never, ever got a bad word to say about it. I never will because everything that club's about and the people that are there. And ultimately, that's sometimes that happens in football. I mean, six months six months earlier, I could have taken the Celtic job you know, when I was yeah. off the job, but I didn't. So it's not that I was looking to jump it. You know, so you know, I think sometimes you've got to give a bit of balance to it and understand, well, Celtic's my team. You know, that, that I love Glasgow Celtic. Why would they not leave Celtic at a time? So anyway, it happened. We moved on, but it doesn't take away my, my feelings for, for Burnley and everything else. And things at Bolton went well, but I'm just wondering now, because we'd already talked about hindsight, do, do you ever now wish you'd gone to Celtic at that time when that came up? I th- Michael, I think things happen. You make decisions and that's what they are. If we're going to start looking back and everything, you'd be all over the place. So okay. something happens, you move on and everything else. And, uh, you know, my family were settled down here at the time of the Celtic thing, we were happy and the kids so important in their ages and different things. So there's a number of things that went into that. But in terms of Bolton, we went into Bolton, Bolton were blocked by the league, favourites for relegation. Uh, and, you know, obviously I know now, but there was obviously a huge debt at the club. And we, we didn't spend any money. I got Jack Wilshire on loan from, from Arsenal. I got Vladimir Weiss on loan from Man City. And I brought Stuart Holden in and a Bosman from Houston Dynamo, spent no money and kept Bolton up with nine points. We did a fantastic job. And then the following year, we had Bolton in the top six for three quarters of the season until we were decimated by injuries. Sam Ricketts did his Achilles, Stuart Holden get injured. We had three or four crucial ligament injuries. It was incredible. And, and all the while, we're having to cut back because of obviously, which I didn't know, I mean, the debt was on, the level was unbeknown me to when I came in. But when I came in, if you look back, we spent very little because we didn't have any money to spend, but we had to move players on. Uh, Ali Habsey, Matty Taylor, eventually Gary Cahill. You know, top, you know. So that was obviously a challenge. But if you look, having spent no money again, for three, we were Bolton in the top six, a team that was, when we were coming in, the door favourite for relegation. And even then, when we went into the season when we lost our place, uh, anything that could go against you didn't go against you. 
obviously, if, if you remember the incident when, when Fabrice nearly lost yeah. his life, and then we were playing catch with games in hand. But even then, on the last day of the season, because everybody, and again, it's quite topical, everybody talks about the Aguero goal. Mm-hmm. You know, Aguero scored. When we were at Stoke that day, we drew 2-2. Had we won at Stoke that day, both were still in the Premier League, which I've got to tell you would have been the biggest achievement ever, given everything we're through and cutting back. We lost Gary Cahill in the January. You know, when, when, because he was out of contract, the, the club took six or seven million from Chelsea for a player that was worth 25 or 30 million in my mind, but he was going to be out of contract. Uh, and then that day, Chris Foy, because if you actually look now at VAR, the two goals that Stokes scored that day would never have been goals. The first, the first one, when Adam Bogdan gathered the ball, Jonathan Waters barged him over the line for the goal. And the second one, Peter Crouch, overtook his, overhit his touch. And when Adam Bogdan came, he just knocked the ball by him and fell over. It would never have been a penalty. So that's the margins in football. And obviously then, as it was, but we, we did, you know, people have their opinions, but given what we went through at Bolton, some of the stuff we did at Bolton was fantastic. And just, you mentioned Fabrice Mwamba. I don't know if there's a scarier experience for anyone to, to, to have. Oh. I mean, I think it, it, it was surreal because obviously Fabrice was just running in the ground. And in fairness to the physio, Andy Mitchell noticed the doc, Jonathan Tobin, they were straight there and, you know, listen, it, it was remarkable for Fabrice's heart to stop for that length of time. Uh, obviously, the specialist with the stadium, the top of season tickets, so, so he was able to get right down. It was just a, a number of things that happened that obviously made that Fabrice is still here with us, uh, thank God. But, you know, to, to, to freeze him to, uh, as they had to do, and then 24 hours, 24 hours later, bring him back to body temperature, and then for everything to work, and then be no damage because he had about seven, eight minutes he starved of any oxygen going to his brain, yeah. and uh, and you see him now. And Fabrice, he's a very educated, he's a clever man. Uh, sadly, he wasn't like he wasn't able to play football again, which was it's not in terms of your life. He's got a beautiful family, he's a wonderful man, and uh, it was just a. A truly remarkable recovery. It was, it was beyond incredible. It really was. No, you talk about miracles, and and that's a miracle, and it shows you why we're just so glad to have, you know, the the healthcare that we do in yeah. in, in the UK. You know, <laughs> that that there's these amazing people that can do that. It just, the odds were against them to say the least. I'll never forget that day. Obviously, you were there oh. in, in the cold face of it, but I at that point hadn't got a card. I was getting trains back and forth uh, when I was commentating on football games, which was probably not wise. I wouldn't recommend any young reporter do that if you have the opportunity to drive. It's certainly in Northern Ireland, where everything's close. But I was on the train home from a match, and I'd only heard it in the news. And my heart sank hearing that, so I can only imagine how difficult it was for everyone that knew him and was there. Yeah, what, what was special about it as well, you remember, Michael, that everywhere, because Fabrice had got friends, who had got friends, who had got friends, all over the world, Real Madrid, Barcelona, uh, the American basketball teams, if they were underneath their shirts, they took their shirts off, they all had T-shirts, pray for Fabrice. So, uh, so in terms of social media trending, then, then pray for Fabrice and pray in general was, was all over the world. And along with that, it was just, and, and I've got no doubts, I mean, I'm, I'm a go-to go practice and everything else, I've got no doubts. It, it's, it was like, for me, it was a modern day miracle. It was, it was incredible. And when you had the specialist, because when they woke, or they started bringing Fabrice, they woke him up, 
I remember being in the, in the room with, with Lisa's dad, his wife, and, and his friends, and said, we don't know what's happening here, but we'll take mother's going. And it's remarkable, because they were, they were sure there was going to be some damage because of the, the lack of oxygen. And Fabrice is such, you, you speak to him now, he's articulate, he's clever, he's such a well-rounded man. And, uh, and yeah, it was truly remarkable. Um, just to, to bring our spirits back up, I want to go back a wee bit before that, because you were at Solitude for the opening of their 3G pitch, Cliftonville's 3G pitch, and, and you brought your Bolton team over. And the Belfast Telegraph and other newspapers the next day were glowing about Owen Coyle's wonder goal. Ah, yeah, well, I, at that age, I could still run about. But we did bring a strong team. I brought, I mean, even Klasnick, who was an unbelievable, even Klasnick was one of the boys that played, but a number of first team players played because I wanted to, you know, I, I love, as you know, the, the football, I love the, the, the people, the interaction. And I've been, obviously, with Burnley, I've been already in Clintoran and different and I've been in different stadiums. So I want to make sure that opening the new, the new, the new field, uh, that we, we paid it the, the right respect. So we had a strong team, but within that, I played up front the classic. I remember standing my sister saying, right, come on, get off, because we've got some young kids we want to put on. And I said, yeah, I'm coming down, just give me a minute. And it was the best thing I had because I managed to, uh, managed to chip the goalkeeper, should I say. But I was out of my last leg at that point, so I got hooked anyway. But uh, it was wonderful. It's been, I always loved coming over because it was a great event to open the, the new surface and everything else. But the interaction with, with the people in the club, and when all said and done, nobody's any different from anybody else. Football's the same game, Michael. There's just different levels. But it doesn't make you any different. And I like to think that the, 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 the squad and players we had were very humble and they interacted with the players, the boys, and going really well with them. And it was a great occasion. It was a really good night. I really enjoyed it. Uh, one of the players that was marking you is Mal Donaghy's son, Kieran, and I was I was sending him a wee text earlier on to say any any memories of that, and he said it was a really fun experience. And he, he also said, uh, just a reminder, he was hooked before you scored that goal. <laughs> <laughs> and, and fairness to him, that's probably why I got kicking the ball because he went off. <laughs> um, he also says that uh, you and Ivan Klasnich had a, quite a good competition when it came to table tennis. What's that about? Yeah. Well, we, uh, we we always had in the, in the room, lads, just a little bit of downtime. We, we always had a lot of table tennis or darts or whatever. And, they, and in the solitude, they had this uh, this table, but I think they put all the sandwiches and all that on it. Mm -hmm. So we ended up, once the boys eating sandwiches, we got a little game, it was four or five, so, and some of the, the, the boys played as well. Uh, and but classic James, classic which we saw, he was a sport belly. Classic to play in tennis, table tennis. He was just one of those boys. So, but uh, it, was a, it was a decent game, a lot of fun. And then the boys joined in as well. So everybody was there. I think we had a game of doubles with a couple of the, the local boys as well. So it was a really good night. I think you know Irish league fans uh, will love that. You know the sort of appreciation you have for the game here, and and maybe that's over the course of the series. Or different people were bringing on an interview and something that might surprise them because you know we love our wee league sort of in inverted commas as we look at it. And sometimes we forget that you know people like yourself, Premier League managers, will be aware of what's going on over here and, and have at many times connections to the clubs. Absolutely, and the other thing as well. I mean, a lot of this because we've come over for a pre-season game. Because we know the level, we know how competitive it is. Uh, I remember a big Tommy Lee, Tommy was at, uh, at Ballymena, and I came over with St. Johnson team, the top games there, and uh, I think Nicole Lane as well. And, and then I went on and, and uh, I played it, which was my lot, say my local team, was about 50 minutes of my, my home in Ireland at Ballymena Faith and Harps. So we obviously loads of connections, and you know, we're always, and the, and the thing about, you know, particularly Ireland, and 
in both leagues. There's always a hotbed of young talent. You know, I mean, there's always you know some terrific young players. I mean, I, I watched Young Smythe playing the, the, the last week for for Accrington mm-hmm. on loan from Queens Park Rangers. Quick and busy, looked a really good player. Seen him scored the weekend. So you're always looking out for the for the young players that come through. And sometimes boys come over, doesn't work out, and they go back and they really good leagues. Uh, and I think back, you know, and even you know, years gone back when you know, I know Linfield are up at the top just now, and they've always been like the uh, strong team. But ported down as a spell, they were looking. Land have invested in, the, in their team because when I get the ferry, I'm always driving by Land Stadium, and I see the improvement all the time, and it's brilliant to see. So you've always got a vested interest. You've always got friends or people you know that have worked in the leagues, and, and you're always got an eye out for it. What would you say for young players now trying to make their breakthrough and get across? I guess one of the, the big things about the Irish League is at a young age, you could get 200, 300 games at men's football quite young. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Michael, because I always, I always think this, and I understand, the, I understand the lure of the big glamour clubs, you know, when the kids, the kids are young and everything else. My, my, my challenge for that is that Sometimes those kids can, particularly if you're really young, coming away from home. I mean, that can be a challenge. I'm, I'm probably speaking from somebody who's been very fortunate and to be in such a, a tight knit family. You know, one of nine, one of nine children, mum and dad, and everything else. So I was very fortunate in terms of that upbringing. But I think if if you do come away too early for whatever reason, and you don't, for example, let's just stay at a Manchester United or a club like that who have great connections and. Northern Ireland and Ireland and these big clubs are always looking for that special talent. There's a lot to be said for being at that local club and getting those league games under your belt so that when you do make the move, you're ready for it. You know, not only on a football level, but on a, on a, on a mentality level and on a, on a family level. And sometimes what happens is, and I always say this, kids can bounce back, can have resilience, but some kids don't and they're lost to the game. And that's the bit that saddens me. You know, if if they're given the right advice, the right career path, then they may go and play. They may go and play thirty games at Lamb, and they're ready for that for that move. Mm-hmm. So Lamb's helped them. They've helped Lamb because there's a there's a bigger transfer fee there as well, and the money stays within football, and you're helping each other. Now that's not to say that a kid can't go at thirteen and go and be an absolute star at a big big club. Of course they can, but when there's a volume of them going, they're not all they're not all going to go and achieve that. And you don't want any of them lost to the game. Whereas if they take it step by step, I always equate it to a ladder. If you take the steps up the rung of the ladder, you'll eventually get to where you want to be. Yeah, and it's a it's just fascinating to see as well. You know, in, in some ways there's no right or wrong way or a definitive way to do it. It's maybe a better way of putting it. And there's time and place and luck all comes into it too. No, absolutely. And I think the the, the biggest thing I think for kids is that you've got to be given opportunity. If you're given opportunity and it doesn't work out, that's fine because you've given the chance. It's when you're not given the chance. That's the bit I think you can eat away at them. And then they might get disillusioned with the game. They might get lost to the game. And that's and we want as many kids enjoying and playing the game as we can. It must be a good time for young Scottish lads when you look at the, the national team and, and everything that's ahead of them this summer. You know, uh, let's, let's face it, Scotland have had to suffer a wee bit. And when it comes to international football, that's an understatement of the year, isn't it? Um, no. No, you're, you're right on that, Michael. And I think for young players anywhere, it's, it's just a brilliant opportunity, the way the game's gone. Because obviously, there is there is huge discrepancies between the finance at the top level and the finance at the lower level. So if you can have young players come through, then they're going to get that chance at that level. And ultimately, if you're good enough, you're going to get to there anyway. 
So, and the thing for me is, you know, I know kids love their computers and all that, but let's get them out of fresh air. Even from a health point of view, get kids out exercising, enjoying what they're doing. It doesn't have to be football, but sports in general. But because we're passionate about football, let's get as many young footballers with a chance to have careers in the game. Now, it might be it's a part-time career with a very good job. That's the best in both worlds. But let's go, excuse me, enjoy what you're doing and get them into football. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be massive. And right at the start of this, you said about mental health. I think for people's well-being, physically and mentally, when restrictions allow it, getting back out, playing, whatever your sport is, be it football or anything else, it's going to make a world of difference. Absolutely. I remember when I was, uh, when I was, like, was 13 and a half, got for 14. And uh, I was, we were already done it recently, eight weeks in the summer holidays, already done it all. And my, my father's from Woody Forland. And my mother's from a little town land called Glasherhoo, which is just... Uh, so, next to Glasherhoo is the bigger town called Fulcara. And my uncle said, oh, take it along. The boys are playing Gaelic football. You can go and have a game. And I said, yeah, I'm Sam. Sign my professional club, a football. I'll go and play. We'll play the Gaelic football. Oh, my God. They knocked, they knocked, they knocked me all over the place. <laughs> but these boys were... I, I'm thinking, so, yeah, for the Gladwell, you're tough and all that. But these boys were tough. They, they yeah. scared me all over the place. So, that was certainly a learning curve. But the thing was, not only the soccer or the Gaelic, as it was called at the time, but they were all out, they are on the fresh air, they are all exercising. Just to your point there, let's encourage our kids to get out and get out fresh air and get out exercise. Even from, from, a, from a health perspective, let's get our kids you know, feeling good about themselves. And what's your secret for, for any managers watching this, whatever their story is, that, to have the energy and the, the vibrancy that you have, Owen, you, you can see you're a very happy person. You, you, you make, I'm feeling good talking to you, which, you know, that's a massive thing. Not everybody has that. So that's obviously in you. And I would say it was probably instilled in you by your parents and, and how fondly you speak of, of them. But, you know, how do you keep that? Because of the Premier League grind you down, I would have thought. Yeah, I, th- I think like most things, yeah, of course, I think that's, it's a brilliant question, Michael, and I'll tell you why. I think it's really important that you do have that support system in place, that mechanism, because ultimately, as a, as a manager, particularly at that elite level, that could be a very lonely place. You know you have your assistant and your staff, but ultimately you're the guy that's, that's making those decisions. You're the one that, you know, everything comes back to. So, of course, at times when things aren't going well, that can be, yeah, it can be lonely and everything else. I think, for me, the key element is that you've got to believe and trust as you've always done, and you, that you know what you're doing. Now, football, results can, form can be temporary. That can happen in football. But the challenge now in football is because everybody wants success yesterday, people are not given time to do their jobs the way they used to be done. So, of course, that's part of the modern game, the challenge of that. So I think all you've got to do is go, you know, stay true to what you believe in and always with players look to try and get the best out because ultimately, good players help you to win games. You know, it's, you know, I want to say it's rocket science. There's little bits you can help, absolutely. But ultimately, the key is when you're putting that, that jigsaw together, because you want a team to play a certain way, then you need certain players that are able to, to, to be able to fit into that. And, and ultimately, you need players that are, that are team players, because it's not always the best players that make the best team. And that's why it's important you get the right pieces in the right place. So in the summer of all those parts, are able to go and win games and do it together, because... This is what, what football brings us, as opposed to an individual sport. It's a team sport. And that feeling togetherness, that feeling of look to your left, look to your right, and knowing those boys are giving everything they've got for you, that's a brilliant feeling. And when you win, that feeling, that togetherness, it's, it's like no other. 
Yeah, uh, that's what we all love about it, definitely. And and those, that, that, you know, they always say, don't, you know, let your highs be too high, your lows be too low. But when you yeah. really care about the job you're doing and it's not going well, as you said, it can be a lonely place. And the, the Premier League, I mean, the, the level of scrutiny you guys face as managers, and, you know, and I, I hold my hands up because obviously it's part of the media at times, I suppose we're all part of it. I, I don't know if I would like to be on the end of, of some of those columns. No, I... I... I think what you're saying, I mean, it's so relative, Michael, I'll tell you what, I thought that last week because I really like Steve Bruce uh, and I think what Steve's having to endure just now, and people think I'm biased because I'm being a manager, but I do think it's unfair. I do think, and I think what happens is that one week somebody's lost a few games, okay, it's his turn, and then, you know, it's his turn, but, and, and obviously Newcastle being a huge club and everything else, and they started really well, and I watched them at the weekend, and they could easily have very unfortunate not, not to win the game. As it happens, they go to my, my old club, Burnley, this weekend, which again is going to be, be a huge game. But I think, so, but in fairness to Steve, Steve's been there, he's seen it, he's done it. And, and again, he'll make sure within himself that he's calm. Now, will that hurt? Of course it will, because we're all human beings. It's only natural, you know? But he's experienced enough to see his way through it. Had it been a younger manager, you would, you would fear for them because they've maybe not had to deal with all that that stuff, because, and that's, the, as we say, the highs and the lows of the game. So I think it's always important that when you get those high moments, that you give yourself a bit of balance, recognising, okay, you don't get too carried away. And equally, when it gets difficult, you don't get too low. You know, you look at it, you understand it, you analyse it, and, and you look to try and get back to it on an even keel. So I always say that, never ever get too high, don't get too low, just try and keep that balance. Sometimes it can be difficult, because people can be very critical, particularly with social media and everything that goes on just now. Uh, but maybe that's why I say you're a manager. Don't be on social media. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably really wise advice. Uh, just before we finish up, did, have you taken on any weird or wonderful hobbies in the last year? You know, some people have, have learned an instrument. Some people have found different ways to occupy their time. Have, have you done anything uh, slightly different yourself? Well, I, I tell you what, I, I wouldn't say it's through choice, but uh, I think it's fair to say the wife's in the garden doing, because obviously with it, with the lockdown, the gardeners haven't come, so I've been doing a bit of uh, the green fingers, shall we say. So I've been out trying to do that. I wouldn't say I'm very good at it, but at least it, it passes a bit of time. And we'll get a little bit of the back way, uh, a little wooded bit, so we'll get two grandkids as well. So my wife had the idea to make them a den and all that. So I think we've been, we've been doing a bit of gardening and getting to know the, the beautiful side of nature. And it's a bit of fresh air, which helps as well at all times. Tell you what, I think I can hear ITV, Colin. There's a series in that. Oh, please not. <laughs> you know, I'll be like, move over, Titchmarsh, here we go. At home with the coils. <laughs> in fairness, if you used to remember with my summer holidays in Donegal anyway. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, no, listen, I've been very fortunate, a wonderful time. And, uh, but you can't beat, as I say, you can't beat the fresh air and, uh, and enjoying, enjoying life as much as you can. And you have a decent little football set up in the garden too. Yeah, well, we have, though, well, as I say, we... When I came in, it was a tennis court, but my brothers, they did it. so anyway, we've turned in there a 4G pitch. So when, you know, the restrictions, we have the fiber size and what have you. Coming up for 55, I'm still trying to run about, but the young, the young, young ones are getting quicker, I think. But anyway, it's all good fun. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. And um, Before we finish, but I didn't realise this, we were just talking before we came on, about your son and, and the coaching work he's doing, and I thought it was worth a, a mention for that, because he, he's working with amputee footballers, and he, I, I just, I, I didn't realise it was happening, but it, it sounds like amazing work. In fairness, Kevin, it's incredible. So he, he does it voluntary. He initially uh, 
joined as, as the assistant manager. He worked at the LFA, Lancashire Football Association, as, as a young coach. Uh, he's just about finishing his A licence now in the English FA. I'm going to say, not because he's mine, he's, he's a better coach than his dad, but maybe people say that's not difficult. Uh, he's, he's an outstanding coach, he really is. And uh, So the England Alcatiz, it's a, it's a charity-based organisation, but you know, we take for granted, you know, we've been sniffing with cold on all field. These boys have lost a limb. So they've obviously lost one of the legs. They play on clutches. Mm -hmm. uh, the goalkeepers are PTs, they've, they've got both legs, but they've lost an arm. They've been to the World Cup, and so he's, they're moving up the rankings all the time. They go to the European Championship this year in Krakow, postponed from last year. And it's so humbling when, when you see them. I mean, the boys have been over here, they've played uh, five or six out there with them. And the level of ability they've got, but to think, you know, the pressure they're putting on their limbs, playing on crutches and everything else, it, it's so humbling. And I would say to anybody, you'll have a look, go on their website, have a look at the stuff. You'll be amazed at the stuff they do. They've now, in the 30 own, they've now got the, the league structure that all the big clubs, Man City, Arsenal, they all have teams, Everton. So, it's, you know, it's getting better every year. And, they, you know, when you see the young ones, they know the young amputees come through, kids at eight, nine, and ten, loving playing football and learning to cope with, which obviously been a huge trauma in their life, whether it's been an illness or an accident. And I've got to say, I mean, it's, it's truly remarkable, it really is. And uh, yeah, I'm so proud of him that he does it. And uh, in terms of his coaching, there's no doubt he's getting better and better all the time. Well, good luck to him and his coaching journey. And well done to, to all the people that put that structure in place. Because that sounds like an amazing facility. So continued success to all of them. I've loved this. It's been so lovely talking to you. It's nice to talk to someone who's just a positive person. And that is definitely you. And so uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, listen, Michael, I've absolutely loved it. As I say, listen, we'll probably know even scratch the surface of half the stuff. So if you need me on again from another part, let me know. Or even to chat about football stuff in Ireland, I'm happy to do it. We, listen, we both, and this is a great thing for me as well, sitting with you as well this morning, I can genuinely tell how much you love the game. Not only that, but how knowledgeable you are. Because, you know, you're not, it's not somebody who comes on and doesn't understand. You've got a fantastic foundation in the game. You know your stuff. And for that, I would sit all day chatting about football. So anytime you need me on again, let me know, pal. It'll be an absolute pleasure. Oh, I'm going to hold you to that. And that, that's going to go on the CV, that last little bit as well. <laughs> there you go. I'm taking my mum and my dad's names off. And Owen Coyle says I'm knowledgeable too. Happy days. <laughs> Thank you. God bless. Cheers, pal. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Michael Clark Show podcast. You can follow me at M Clark Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Check back every Wednesday for a brand new episode, which you can download as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also watch the entire interview via my YouTube channel. That is youtube.com forward slash the Michael Clark Show. And if you like our theme song, it has been kindly provided by the brilliant SX70. Search for SX-70 on Spotify to stream their music. Until next Wednesday, take care. I'll speak to you soon.